Good evening, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to First Peter chapter 1. Uh, it's page 1217 in the Bibles that hopefully should be in the pews. First uh, Peter is a, a short letter, 105 verses in total in our Bibles, written by someone who knew what it meant to really follow Jesus and who knew what it meant to really mess up. Someone who then discovered amazing forgiveness and went on to become a key leader and a passionate gospel communicator in the early church. And at a particular point in time, somewhere around the mid-first century, Peter writes a letter. A letter to Christians who were scattered all over a large part of the modern state of Turkey. Christians who were really up against it. Christians who were seeking to live for God as exiles, as strangers, as foreigners in an increasingly hostile environment, a bit like us. And for that reason, and maybe that reason alone, this letter maintains an incredible relevance to our particular context two millennia later, because we find ourselves living in a society that is increasingly distancing itself from Christianity and from the Christian faith, and from God. Where we recognize a growing sense, or many of us do, a growing sense of alienation. Where suffering and rejection and ridicule and suspicion are not foreign concepts. And so what what Peter says here is absolutely worth hearing and taking on board today. And so what I'd like to do this evening is actually just walk you through the first chapter and the half of the second chapter of this letter. Uh, So as I say, if you can see a copy of God's Word, that is going to be very helpful. And as Peter begins to write, the one thing he's adamant about is that these marginalized Christians know who they are and whose they are. Because How we view ourselves, how we identify ourselves has far-reaching implications. If you get this wrong, you'll run into all sorts of problems, such as you will get completely hung up on what other people think of you or or how other people see you. That will consume you if you get this wrong. But if you get this right, then your sense of self-awareness, security, and significance will make a massive impact on your day-to-day life. So let's read verses 1 and 2. We'll keep our seats. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. You see, the critical issue is how does God see us? How does God see you? And according to Peter, we are God's chosen people. And we've been brought into relationship And the thing about those verses is we discover that the entire Godhead, the Trinity, 
The Father, Spirit, and Son have been involved in securing our identity. Have a look at this. It's according to the knowledge of God the Father. We have been set apart via the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have been forgiven because of the death of Jesus. And the point is God's done it all. God has done everything. It's not about what you have done or haven't done. God has chosen, rescued, saved you. That's grace. That's what we've been thinking about already this evening. In fact, as Peter says, that's grace and peace in abundance. But notice that even in these early introductory remarks, as Peter affirms who they are and whose they are, he includes an important reminder of a key aspect of their calling, which is to obedience. It says there in those verses that they are to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And that is such a core characteristic and purpose in the Christian life, that even in the midst of a hostile context, that even when it's tough to be a Christian, where you live, where you work, where you spend your time, even if it is like that, it's vital to remain committed to following Jesus. Obeying his word, copying his example, letting the pattern of his life become more and more etched on the years. So in these first couple of verses, Peter recognizes their situation. Yes, you are exiles. You are foreigners. You are scattered strangers. But into the reality of their circumstances, he confirms their identity, he affirms their sense of belonging, and he reminds them to be obedient to Jesus. And I suppose even if we were to stop there, that that might be enough. That might be as much as some people need to hear. Remember who you are, whose you are, and keep following Jesus. But let's read the next section. Verse 3. This time we'll stand, just to give us a change of position. Uh, And we'll read down to verse 7. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Take a seat again. Do you know, it's, uh, it's so easy to get caught up in the here and now, isn't it? In the, in the immediate In this world, and at one level that's perfectly understandable, but as Christians, it's absolutely vital we keep an eye on the bigger picture. You see, there is an eternal dimension to life. There is an unseen world beyond this one. This is only temporary. This is not permanent. This is not our long-term home. Our true home as Christians lies ahead elsewhere. It won't be like this forever we won't be here forever and in this letter peter picks up on this issue and i suppose whenever you're writing to a people who are physically scattered 
a people who are excess, a people who have lost touch with any real sense of where is home, then the need to be reminded about your true home and about what is eternal is critical. Plus, whenever you're up against it in the here and now, whenever you're going through some very difficult trials, as these Christians were, you need to be reminded to maintain an eternal perspective. Otherwise, you will get consumed by your circumstances. The need to be reminded of our future destination and what awaits us is so important. And so Peter speaks to them about two things. A living hope and an incredible future inheritance that he says, listen, it cannot be taken away from you. It won't perish. It won't spoil. It won't fade. In other words, it's totally secure. And according to verse 3, it's theirs. It's theirs. Why? Because, again, of the mercy of God, totally undeserved. None of us sitting here this evening deserves a living hope or to have an inheritance kept in heaven for us that's totally secure. Yet, because of the mercy of God, he's given it to us. Given us new birth, it says, into all of this. And how is that made possible? Again, Luke, end of verse 3, via the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because of Jesus, all of this is our reality. And so no wonder Peter starts this little bit with a full-on audible expression of worship. Look at verse 3 as he starts it. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Peter, you're so right. We have the prospect of a future inheritance. But don't miss the next little bit. Yes, it's kept in heaven for you. But you know something? You are going to be kept for it. And for those scattered Christians who were suffering for their faith, this must have meant so much. Have a look at verse 5. Because what does it say? You're shielded by God's power. You're shielded by God's power. And I'm sure these scattered, exiled Christians must have thought, are we ever going to get through this? Are we ever going to be able to stick with this? Are we ever going to be able to hang in there? And so Peter says, listen, not only is your inheritance secure, but you're secure. Why are you secure? Because you are shielded by God's power. It's kept for you. You're kept for it. And I don't know what you're going through at the moment. And I've no doubt there will be people here who are facing all kinds of challenges to their Christian faith. Maybe pressures to just pack it all in. To give it up. You're rejected at times. You're ridiculed. You feel isolated. Maybe a sort of sense of dislocation that you're different from everybody else. That you sort of stand out because of what you believe. Because of who you are and whose you are. And you think at times, am I ever going to make it through to the end? But can I just offer you this verse and encourage you to just grab hold of it. That God's shield, I'm sorry, he will be shielded by God's power until it says the coming of the salvation that's going to be revealed in the end. Now, don't be confused by Peter's reference here to a coming salvation. Because some people read that and wonder, well, does that mean these people aren't currently saved? Because if Paul is actually saying a coming, or Peter's saying a coming salvation, 
does that mean these people aren't currently saved? And what's important here to note is how biblical writers often use the same vocabulary but with a different emphasis. And so here, Peter talks about salvation as a future experience, whereas someone like Paul, for example, talks about uh, this as a present reality. But you've got to take those together, and that therefore communicates a really important truth. Christians are saved now, yes. Christians will be saved then. Present and future salvation. But how does Peter want his readers to react? How does he want them to respond to this living hope, to this inheritance, to this promise of protection, and to this coming salvation? Well, look at the start of verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice, even though for now you're suffering grief. And the point here is that Christians can know joy in the midst of mess. And some people don't understand how that is possible. And yet, according to Peter, it's true that in all of this, this living hope, this inheritance, this promise of protection, this coming salvation, you can rejoice even though you're going through the mill. A deep, abiding joy that comes through an awareness of the bigger picture. But Peter doesn't actually stop there. That's just saying in this you greatly rejoice. There's another dimension, and this is a reasonably difficult dimension. And I want to draw attention to it. And as I do that, I, I recognize and appreciate the need to be sensitive in ways whenever you say this sort of stuff in front of a group of people. But what Peter actually goes on to talk about is how suffering is often one of the means by which God strengthens the faith of believers on their journey towards this future inheritance. Look at verse 7 where he actually says, these trials have come, why? To refine your faith and to prove that it's genuine. And I'm not suggesting that this lies behind all suffering. Nor do I believe that just because some people suffer or appear to suffer more than others, far more than others, that that means their faith needs to be refined further or it needs to be proved more genuine but there is no doubt, based on Peter's writing here, and based on teaching that we find elsewhere in Scripture, that suffering and trials are used by God to shape us, to transform us, and to strengthen us. And I know in my own life, if I'm honest, it's often through the hard stuff and the tough times that I learn the most and grow the most. I don't want the suffer trials and yet I realize that in my Christian walk and in my Christian faith it's often through going through those sort of times that my faith is refined and strengthened and built up let's move on verse is 13 to 21 we're not going to read those but in this what Peter does is he urges the Christians to stay focused on their journey and what he actually says to them, I want you to look in three directions. Here's where I want you to look. I want you to look forward, up, and back. Because if you can look forward, up, and back, then it will impact your day-to-day -day life. And in verse 13, have a look at it, he wants his readers to look ahead, to activate their thinking, to get their minds in gear, center their hope on the grace, in other words, on God's generosity, 
that is to be brought to them, still to be brought to them. Again, this reference to something that's still to come. When? Jesus Christ is revealed. So in other words, as they live in the present, Peter says, I want you to keep an eye on the future. And as Christians, that that remains a real challenge for us. A real challenge. That no matter what you're going through at the moment, and as I say, I know there are many people here going through some intense challenges. And yet God's word says, keep an eye on the future. Look forward. And then he encourages them to look up. To look up to God for their inspiration for current conduct and lifestyle. In verse 14 he says, listen, I don't want you to be conformed to the way you used to live. To the way you did before you believed in God and knew God. But instead, I want you to live a life of holiness. And how do you do that? You look to the character of of God to the one who is holy and who then calls you to a life of holiness. And we come across one of the most startling commands in Scripture here. Be holy as I am holy. And so as we journey through the Christian life in a hostile world, look to the character of God in order that we might mirror his distinctive love and faithfulness, and forgiveness, and justice, and all the rest of the holy characteristics of our God. Be holy, as God is holy. And then finally, Peter says, I want you to look back. Only this time, I don't want you to look back at your former life. But in verses 18 to 21, he says, I want you to look back to the cross of Christ. Peter wants them to remember and recall the cost of their redemption. Recall how much it cost to rescue them and to set them free. That they were bought not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Jesus. And if you can keep the cross in constant focus, then you'll continually breathe new life into your present Christian experience. And that's why this is so important. That's why what we're about to do in a moment is vital. Because here, every week, In this church, and I know I'm sounding like a broken record because I seem to say this almost every week, but here, on a weekly basis, we are reminded to look back. Keep looking back to the cross. And so as pilgrims on a journey, says Peter, as Christians living in a hostile context, look forward, look up, and look back. Verses 22 through to verse 3 of chapter 2. What Peter does here is he reminds them of these two things. To the word of God and to the relationships with one another. And this is brilliant and and so relevant, I believe. And so he says, I want you to focus on God's word, his living and enduring word. Not only are you born again through it. That's what he says here. Through the preaching of it. Not only are you born again through God's word. But this word is actually essential for your ongoing growth in faith. That as you journey, you require constant nourishment. And that's what you need to be feeding on. You've actually to crave this. He describes it as pure spiritual milk. Now again, that's one of those 
images that, that Peter uses differently from Paul. Because whenever Paul talks about milk, he almost talks about it in terms of it's sort of like a sign of immaturity if you stick with milk, that you need to start eating more solid things. But, but Peter uses this differently. Peter says that God's word is something you constantly need to be drinking just like spiritual milk. You never grow out of it. You never move on beyond that. But the second thing that Peter identifies as crucial to their journey is their relationships. And what does he say there in verse 22? Love one another, but not just love one another. How do they love one another? Deeply from the heart. And he actually then goes on to tell them what that entails. Because he says, do you know what? There are certain things that need to be removed from the life of every believer if they're going to love each other deeply from the heart. And so he says here, rid yourself of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. There's no place for those in a Christian community. You've got to weed them out. And so Christians need to be committed to truth and committed to love. Committed to the word of God, committed to the people of God. And so Peter says, what I want you to do, have a passionate commitment to God's word and a passionate commitment to one another. And that will see you through. Verses 4 to 10. Peter then points out what God's doing. It's a really important God-centered part of his letter. He says, God's in the process of building something. Not a physical structure, but he's building a people. He's building his church. And you know something? You're included. You're part of this. And look what it's built on or who it's built on. Jesus, the living stone, the precious cornerstone. And Peter says, listen, some have and some will reject him. Jesus is a stumbling block to many people. That was the case then, it still is now. But not to you. You're different. Like living stones, you're being added and you're being slotted into this growing structure. You're part of this. And why are you part of this? Because, look at verse 4, you've come to Jesus. Look at verse 6, you've placed your trust in him. Look at verse 7, you've believed. Look at verse 8, you've obeyed the message. You have embraced the word of God. And so you're part of what God is building. And then in what can only be described as a kind of avalanche of terms, Peter confirms more about their new identity as part of this new structure. Verse 9, you're a chosen people. A royal priesthood. In other words, a people with particular responsibilities. You're a holy nation. You're set apart. You're distinctly different. And you're people belonging to God. You're not disconnected. You're not dislocated. You're not isolated. But you're a people who belong. And as one commentator writes, in four short phrases, Peter reminds them with short hammer blows of the way God views them and how they should view themselves. And so having talked about this new God-designed, God-structured building, 
And having affirmed their identity as part of that, Peter then clarifies their purpose in it. And what is their purpose in it? It's to offer spiritual sacrifices. You're part of this new building, this new temple, this new spiritual house. And what is your role? What is your purpose? To offer spiritual sacrifices. But what are they? Because sacrifices were part of the Old Testament system. And priests did offer those. So as a new priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices, now what exactly is he talking about? And we find the answer to that, at least a a significant part of the answer at the end of verse 9. Here it is. That you may declare the praises of God. Because elsewhere in the Bible it does talk about how we bring a sacrifice of praise. We are people who should be constantly delighting in the goodness of God. Constantly expressing it. Why? Well, again, look at through these verses. We've been called out of darkness into God's wonderful light. We're part of his building project. We are those four things we've just mentioned. We are the people of God. We have received mercy. And therefore, what must we do? We must declare the praises of God. It's only natural if you believe this. It's only natural if this is true of you. And then in the final little bit, he offers two pieces of advice. He says, as you go on living in this tough context, here's two things I just want to leave with you before he moves on to that kind of different emphasis in the letter. He says, I want you to abstain from sinful desires. Don't entertain them. Don't give in to them, but turn away from them. Every Christian faces sinful desires on a daily basis. But we can resist them. Why can we resist them? How can we resist them? Because we have the Spirit of God within us. And although as Galatians 5 teaches there is this internal battle between the Spirit of God who lives within every Christian and the sinful nature which tries to get us to do and actually Paul in Galatians 5 lists this whole catalogue of things that the sinful nature tries to get us to do. But what we believe is that we can choose a better way. How can we choose a better way? Because we have the Spirit of God and so we can take Peter here at face value and we can abstain from sinful desires but it will be tough. But it's just not about what we don't do. Peter then says, here's what you should do. Live a good life and do good. Even in a hostile context, even when you've been given a hard time as a Christian, do you know what the best way to respond is? Just do good. Just do good. And the brilliant thing is, according to Peter here, people will take notice And not only will people take notice of your good deeds and your good life, but God will use those good deeds to bring glory to him someday. And so just to sum up how we should live as Christians in a difficult environment, know who you are and whose you are. Chosen by God, shielded by God's power, part of his church of living stones, royal priesthood, holy nation, people belonging to God. Know what you have, a living hope and a secure inheritance that nobody and nothing can take from you. And know what you should do now. Be obedient. Rejoice in the midst of mess. Look forward 
Look up, look back. Love God's word. Love each other. Declare God's praises. Abstain from sin. Do good. It's that easy. May God help us. Andy.